Hey there, and welcome back to the Birth Story Therapist Podcast. It's Crystal here, therapist, mama, and content creator. I wanted to come on and give a trigger warning for this week's episode. Um, As always, we're talking about things that are heavy within motherhood. This episode, however, does mention suicidal ideations, um, as well as possible intimate partner violence. And so I wanted to come on to um, hopefully minimize any sort of harm, trauma, secondary trauma that you may experience listening to this episode. I also wanted to leave with you the number to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which is 1-800-799-7233. Again, that's 1-800-799-7233. And as a reminder regarding suicidal ideations or thoughts of self-harm, please call 911 or go to your local emergency room. You can also utilize the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. Hi there, and welcome to the Birth Story Therapist Podcast, the safe space for mamas and parents to share their birth stories. Discuss common issues experienced with parenting, feel heard and validated, engage in discussion about the complexity of their motherhood journeys and how they manage their mental health along the way. Come here every week to hear from mamas who are just like you, figuring it out one day at a time. Hear from myself, Crystal, licensed therapist, host of this podcast and private practice owner of Southeast Perinatal Counseling. I specialize in maternal mental health, if you haven't guessed already. I'll share helpful tips and techniques to manage your mental health as you navigate motherhood, both in the perinatal and postpartum period, as well as bring on other mamas so you can gain from their history, their stories, maybe some gems that you can apply to your motherhood journey. And of course, I also have on professionals within the maternal mental health space that might be able to offer additional techniques and resources to help you along the way. So I want to welcome this mom on to today's episode of the Birth Story Therapist podcast. I had the pleasure of knowing this mom years back, but I, just like you listeners, are coming with fresh ears, ready to pick up gems and just hold space for her beautiful story. I know that this is uh, an opportunity that a lot of moms do not get, you know, to be able to share your story, to feel heard, to feel validated, and to just sit across from another mom who can understand the struggle that we all sometimes feel within motherhood. And so I'm completely honored and both humbled um, in order to be able to do this um, with you and I'm so thrilled um, to get to know you on a much deeper level with your story. Um, And again, this is a space that is created for moms. So there's no judgment here, right? Nothing but compassion, nothing but grace and support. So, you know, I would love for you to share who you are, um, a little bit about yourself and what you do and any other information that might be helpful in us just getting to know you a little bit more before we jump into your story. Thank you for that amazing intro and thank you for what you're doing with this podcast, Crystal. 
it is very necessary. And I love that you said it's a safe space for moms because as moms, we definitely need that. Um, so before I even introduce myself, I want to say how appreciated you are. But hi to all the listeners out there. My name is Bree Wilson. Actually, no relation to Crystal Wilson, even though we used to get asked that question all the time in school. Um, and I am in Columbia, South Carolina. I am a mother of two princesses, the oldest who turned seven on yesterday and the youngest is four and a half. Um, I am... I support all things children, all things mom, all things early learning. I'm the early learning and literacy coordinator at South Carolina's PBS channel. So for all the moms out there, if you ever need anything, I can give Crystal my contact information and I'd be happy to support you, whether it's in a personal way or through the work that I do. And I also am an urban fiction author. You can find my work on Amazon, Books A Million, um, Barnes & Noble and Walmart. And I write under the pen name Brianna Morgan. Um, otherwise, I just love being with my children, being with my family. I have an amazing uh, partner. My boyfriend is extremely helpful with the kids and you know we just like doing things as a family um game nights traveling beaches pools so i'm that type of mom so if anybody out there uh ever wants to connect and get our little ones together i'm more than excited to do that as well yay Thank you so much for um, extending appreciation for this platform. You're so right. This is necessary. And, you know, moms like you who are more than willing to, um, you know, stand in our collective voices again is so incredibly important. I also want to say yes for the amazing work that you're doing with um, PBS Kids and with um, your your literature work is just so amazing to see other women, women of color, Black women um, who hold these spaces um, for us to have access to. So yeah, I'll definitely get your information and I'll put it in the show notes for others to be able to connect with you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us, walk with us through... Um, your oldest's uh, pregnancy journey. What did that look like for you? Oh my goodness. Um, so I was telling Crystal you all before, or when she invited me on the podcast, I'm like, yeah, I would love to do it because I actually have two very different birth stories and my children are only two and a half years apart. But the first experience I had told me I will never go to that particular hospital. I will not use this particular doctor um, or these methods again. And I had a much better birth story the second time around. My first, The first time I was pregnant, I was 23 years young, fresh out of college. And as a young black woman who's pregnant, you know, carrying the first her first baby, I had a lot of questions. And unfortunately, during that nine month period of me being pregnant, I felt like a lot of my questions with my particular doctor at the time and that practice went unanswered. Um, so I actually, my parents actually bought me the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, and that answered more questions than my doctor did, unfortunately. Um, I kept having, I know a few days before I had her, 
I was having bad cramps and my mucus plug had come out at work. And of course, if this is your first time pregnant and you're at work and you look in the toilet and there's blood and mucus, you are very scared, um, especially knowing you're less than two weeks from your due date. So I went to the doctor on that particular day, which was Tuesday, August 26, 2014. And they told me, oh, well, your mucus plug came out. However, your contractions are only about nine to 10 minutes apart. So we're going to send you home and you have to stay home until they're five minutes apart. And then that's when you come back. Now, I was in pain, everybody. So, you know, any woman who has experienced pregnancy, you know that with the contractions, whether they're five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes apart, contractions are painful. So I just had, I got a notebook. That was what my mom suggested because she's the one who took me to the hospital. I was not comfortable driving. And so she um, suggested I get a notebook and on the way um, back, you know, from the hospital, we stopped by the store and she told me to write down the times of all the contractions. And then once I saw that they were five minutes apart or even getting closer to five minutes apart, go ahead and call her so that we can go back to the hospital. And so I stayed home from work the next day, which was August 27th. But something in my crazy 23 year old brain said, go to work the next day, the 28th. Um, I think it was me trying to be superwoman, which a lot of women are guilty of. I know I still am, even though I have an amazing Superman beside me. Um, that wasn't the case at the time. And so I was trying to be superwoman. I was trying to push through any pain I had. And I decided to go to work because in my head, um, I wasn't an hourly employee. I was salary. However, uh, you know, I wanted to save up all my time for my maternity leave. So I'm thinking the more I work, you know, the more time I'll have to be off with my daughter. And so I went to work on the morning of August 28th, got there at 8.30. By 9.15, I was screaming. I worked in, the, in a call center at the time. And I had to literally put a customer on mute that I was on the phone with and scream. And everybody looked at my cubicle like, what in the world does Brie have going on? And I said, y'all, I'm in labor. I'm in labor. Somebody help. Those were my words. And so my cousin's wife worked in the call center with me at the time. And so she ran over to me and she like uh, pushed my chair to the elevator all the way from my cubicle. We went down to the elevator. She pushed me off. Now I'm not in a wheelchair. I'm in just a regular rolling chair. And um, she got me some grits and she's like, you need to eat because if these contractions are real and it's really time, you're not going to be able to eat till after you have the baby. So she got me the blandest grits I've ever had because <laughs> um, they did not have butter, salt and pepper on them, nothing, just grits. And she forced me to eat as she called my mother. And my mother, uh, knowing our experience from the hospital a few days ago, she's like, okay, they are not going to send us home. So I'm going to get something to eat before we go. And I'm like, Ma, please, I'm in pain. And she's like, no, Brie, I'm going to stop by Bojangles. I'm going to get me something to eat. And then we're going to go to the hospital. So we finally get to the hospital. My contractions were seven minutes apart, y'all, seven. So not quite at five, but... You know, I felt it. I felt my daughter coming. I knew it was time. In my heart, in my head, I knew it was time. So the doctor did not want to move me into the room for active labor, um, active delivery, or was it? 
yeah, it was active labor. And then they moved me into another delivery room later. But yeah, they didn't want to move me from like the triage area to another room. So my mother, um, I, <laughs> she kind of had to go off on them. I hate to say it like that, but you know, she had to really advocate for me. And they were saying, oh, well, we we just don't have enough room. And my mom's like, well, this baby is coming. And she's coming one way or another. She's coming in one room or another. So you might as well put my daughter in the correct room so that she can go ahead and get her epidural. Um, I'm not a natural mom. I'll say that. I, my hat goes off to every natural mama out there. But both times I did have the epidural. And so they kept monitoring my contractions. And so they got down from seven minutes apart to six minutes and they still didn't want to move me. So I'm just sitting here in pain, not even able to get an epidural yet, um, literally until they started to become five minutes apart, which took about two hours. It was, I didn't realize it would take that long, mm -hmm. but it took about two hours. And then they finally moved me into the delivery area where um it was almost too late for me to get an epidural because they waited so long and the doctor he was on the guy who um you know would give you the epidural he was on the whole other side of the hospital in their like or of the um maternity ward I guess and he they were like oh he's coming he's coming and I kept dilating and they were like oh my gosh the baby's coming soon. And I'm like, no, the baby does not need to come without an epidural. So once again, my mother who had to advocate for me, she had to really chase this man down to come bring me some medicine. And by this time, my father was there and my daughter's father was there. And so they, um, you know, allowed three of them because obviously this was pre-COVID. So they allowed all three to be in the delivery room with me. And I, I remember being very hungry and they said, OK, well, you can get popsicle, but you can't get red. What color do you want? And I specifically told them purple because when they said yellow and I asked what flavor that was, they said banana. Y'all, they brought me a banana pop. <laughs> <laughs> like bananas. <laughs> and so um, I cried, actually. I was pregnant. I was scared. I was in pain. I was emotional. And I just began crying. Mm. At this point, my dad, he said, well, can y'all give her some ice? Give her something if y'all don't have a, a purple popsicle like she requested. Because y'all are not going to have my daughter, you know, feeling like this her first time giving birth. Like she is, she she's out of it. And so they gave me some ice chips. And then I remember going to sleep, waking up and I'm like, okay, I have to use the bathroom. And that's when the doctor said, no, it's time to push y'all in the middle of me pushing. The doctor had to leave and they brought in a midwife who was amazing. The midwife was amazing, but they had to go do an emergency C-section, which now as I'm older, I understand. But in that moment, being 23, being you know, just uh, kind of scared and alone and just uh, not already receiving what I consider the best treatment from the doctor's office up to this point. I was really upset, you know, that the doctor kind of left in the middle of me pushing. Mm. <laughs> so then the midwife ended up delivering my daughter. Um, I didn't realize what next steps were, but what I know now is that I should have been able to get skin to skin contact, which I did not get. Um, also, my daughter was born on a Thursday and they released me on Saturday, August 30th. Um, that was the first day that I saw the lactation specialist. Um, so when, when she was born, 
They, I mentioned that I wanted to breastfeed. They said, oh, the lactation specialist isn't here. And I found out later that that should not have been the case. But being that it was my first time and, you know, my mom, she couldn't really help on to that degree because my mom did not breastfeed me. She breastfed my brother um, through pumping a little bit, but she really didn't breastfeed. So and plus she had had me, you know, 20 something years ago at the time. So, um, she didn't really put up a fight when they said the lactation specialist isn't here. So here's the Gerber. They gave my daughter um, Gerber Good Start. I think that's what it was. And so I was bottle feeding her. And then one of my cousins, she actually came to see me the day that I was set to get out. And she recently had children. She actually has three sons that are just a little bit older than my, my oldest daughter. And so when she was asking me about my experience and she asked me how the baby was latching, I'm like, oh, she's not because um, I was never taught how to breastfeed. The lactation specialist wasn't here and my cousin went off. And this is when my cousin tracked down the lactation specialist on this good old Saturday morning. And that's when she finally came to the room and she's like, oh, nobody even told me you had a baby. And I'm like, what? I'm confused. And my cousin was like, well, you know, a part of your job is to know who is here in labor and to visit their rooms the moment that they give birth after skin to skin contact. And that's when I asked both of them, I said, well, what is that? I didn't get that either. So, um, yeah, overall, I, I didn't have a horrible birth story the first time around. You know, my baby was not able to breastfeed because after two days, two full days of Gerber Good Start, you know, taking the bottle on the nipple, when the lactation specialist tried, she eventually gave up. And her words to me were, she's not going to latch. It's too late. Mm. And yeah, because she was trying to put her on me. Um, it hurt. Obviously, any mom who has even attempted breastfeeding will know that it hurts, but I was willing to fight through it. But because my daughter was not used to that type of nipple, um, I think my nipple was a lot flatter than like the bottles nipple that she'd been getting. Um, the lactation specialist did not give me any tips or any tricks to help her latch. And when I got home, all I had was Google and Google was only helpful really when it came to pumping, but because my breasts weren't used to it um, and maybe because I was even doing that wrong, I was getting a lot of blood in her milk. So after about a week, I stopped trying. So I was not able to breastfeed my first daughter. And I do credit that to um, the fault of the hospital, I will say. And it's because I don't, I wasn't given that attention when she was first born that I was actually supposed to be given. But um, the second time around, you know, because after that experience, like I said, I wasn't too fond of my doctor anyway. And then the hospital that that doctor's office was connected to, you know, I had all these issues. So I just decided to use the hospital where I was born, which was actually Baptist Hospital here in Columbia for my second pregnancy. So I found a new doctor's office and I thoroughly enjoyed my experience. Um, they made birth and delivery so easy. They actually turned up the epidural so high the second time that I could not feel anything. I, I couldn't even feel how hard they wanted me to push or how hard I was pushing because they gave me so much medicine. And then they, I didn't even have to ask for skin to skin. Immediately once my daughter was born, once they wiped her off, they handed her back to me and said, lay her on your chest for about an hour. Just let her sleep, let her be. 
And then the lactation specialist, without me having to even ask any questions, was in there um, about 10 minutes after our skin-to-skin contact. And I was successfully able to breastfeed my daughter, my second daughter, for 22 months. Mm-hmm. So she did until she was almost two years old because I had been taught the proper technique in the hospital. Um And as I started, you know, just doing more research just about my treatment and talking to other women who had gone to this particular hospital and doctor's office I went to the first time, I did find out that some women of color had been treated the same way I'd been treated. And then later on, when my father developed cancer, he went to that hospital because they supposedly had a great oncology unit. Um, He experienced medical racism. And so I know that uh, often you know, people say, oh, well, medical racism doesn't exist, or, you know, you're just, you're just emotional, you know, you don't really know what you're talking about, they're just doing their job. Medical racism does exist. And so I will advocate for all women of color to when that time comes in your life, when you are pregnant, or even when you're sick, please make sure that you get a doctor, uh, first of all, a primary physician that can identify with you, a gynecologist that can identify with you. And then when you're going into, when you're researching, you know, hospitals, you want to give birth at, if you choose to give birth in a hospital, make sure that you look at, you know, what doctors would be handling you and um, look at any cases that might be open because it does exist. And I, I did experience it. It wasn't on a terrible level, uh, thankfully, but I do feel that the main thing they stopped me from was getting some attention maybe when I needed it. Like they kind of, you know, made me wait to the very last minute to put me in the delivery room. It took me and my mom uh advocating for myself and then it also took my cousin tracking down a lactation specialist two days after my daughter had been born in order for her to even come see me and then she pretty much gave up you know and so I don't think she really did her job if I can be quite frank um and because of that you know my daughter had formula which there's nothing wrong with formula my daughter's healthy and everything but I was under the impression that breast was best and that's what I wanted to do for my kids um I believe I also asked them at that first hospital to keep the um, placenta and they denied that request as well. I forgot to mention that. Mm. Oh, great. Okay. So we got a lot. We got a lot to talk about here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's back up for a bit and let's start with uh, the fact that you mentioned that you were feeling unheard by your provider and feeling like you weren't receiving adequate care. I'm sure that, you know, because of that, that not only was disheartening, unexpected, um, possibly considering the expectation that you had coming into your pregnancy. Like we all assume, you know, that our pregnancy is going to be uncomplicated. Our providers are going to be a good fit. We're going to get the compassion in the bedtime manner that we need and get taken care of. And so talk with us a little bit about how that affected you on like a mental and emotional level, um, just seeing the level of care or the lack of that you were receiving? Yes, um, you're absolutely right. I'm mentally and emotionally, I felt alone. Um, I know that when we're pregnant, we, or I know I, uh, my second time around, uh, because I felt that that care was there, I would call my doctor or my doctor's office and speak with the nurse. You know, with if anything was 
abnormal. You know, if I had some spotting, I'd call and say, hey, is this okay? Is this normal? Do I need to come in? Um, I actually had spotting the first time around and they just said, oh, it's just pregnancy. You're fine. And that might've been the case. I'm not going to say that wasn't the case. However, I was a little further in my pregnancy. And so with my um, book, between my book, What to Expect When You're Expecting and Google, that was how I got a lot of answers. And what I found was that some women do spot in the beginning of their pregnancy. But at this point, I believe I already knew she was a girl. So I believe I was at least past five months pregnant. Mm. And I, I woke up one day and just had some spotting throughout the day. And so I called the next day because it continued into the morning and they're like, oh, it'll stop. It's just pregnancy. And I really felt dismissed because I wanted an appointment. But what they were saying was, well, you know, you're not, you're only coming once a month at this time. So you just need to stick to your appointment and voice all your concerns with the doctor when you get there. And to me, that just wasn't, that wasn't good enough. You know, you could have said, oh, well, go to the ER and let them triage you because you are five, six months pregnant. You know, let's see what's wrong. I actually had the very same issue, the very same issue the second time around. My youngest daughter was born in February and this was November 11th. Um, I remember because I was off for Veterans Day and I had some spotting when I went to the restroom. I called my doctor because now, you know, I had a new doctor. I had an African-American doctor, not saying that I don't trust anyone who's of another race. But I felt that throughout this process, she was able to identify with me and that she really cared about me. So I was comfortable calling her office. They said, "Okay, go to the ER and we'll get you triaged. I go and I was actually in preterm labor. They had to give me a shot to stop her from coming. So, you know, I it's just like they took the proper precautions and then they actually found that there was a problem. There may not have been a problem the first time, but how would you know that mm. if you did not send me to the ER? So just little things like that. I was not comfortable after that point. That was at about five months I was not comfortable calling the doctor's office when I had an issue. I remember one time um, I, let's see, it was something with my weight. I think I had gone from at this particular appointment when they weighed me, um, this was now toward the end of my pregnancy where, you know, you're going every week to the doctor and they tell you it's normal to gain about two pounds a week toward the end. So at this particular appointment, I think I gained three and a half pounds versus 12. I mean, versus not 12 versus two. And I was feeling insecure, you know, because I'm already big. I'm already hot because my oldest was born in the summertime. So this had to be like July. And, um, you know, I was just already feeling blah. And I said to the doctor, I said, well, I'm trying to walk every day because I know that that helps with delivery. He said, well, you should also walk because you're gaining a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you, you really made me feel great. Thank you. But I had no health issues. Thank God. I never during either pregnancy got um, like gestational diabetes or, you know, yeah. I never had anything wrong, but it was just for me to be an extra pound and a half off from what the expected weight was to be. And for him to make that comment, not even addressing what I said about delivery being easier if you're walking, he said, well, you need to walk because you're gaining a lot of weight. That 
that frustrated me. It's just so many small things that frustrated me to where I was not comfortable. Um, like I said, asking questions, voicing concerns um, at the time, because I will, you know, clarify for anyone listening. So my children have a father, a biological father. And then the guy I'm with now is my boyfriend. So I know in the earlier I referenced, like I have a great partner that is not the biological father to my children. So at the time I did not have a supportive partner. And so I was going to my appointments alone uh, because my mom was working. My dad was working. My little brother, he's seven years younger than me. So what can he really say or do, you know? So I was just alone really in the whole process. Um, as far as when it came to my health. Now I had great friends and family, you know, everybody was excited for me, but when it came to getting these questions answered and, you know, talking to the doctor about my concerns, I didn't really have anyone at the doctor's office with me to, you know, advocate for me. So the first time my mom was able to advocate on my behalf with my first pregnancy was at the hospital. And that she saw that everything I've been saying about this hospital and their, you know, regulations and the doctor's office might have been true just because of how I was being treated. But I didn't have any like witnesses there. Yeah. Um, I think that that was also kind of played on because, you know, you go into the doctor's office, you see all these couples, you see, you know, people there with their support persons and then you see me. Um, a young black girl kind of alone and it felt like they took that and said oh we can just treat her any kind of way we can give her secondary care it's okay mm -hmm. um so yeah that was really how I felt during my first pregnancy it wasn't a great feeling yeah you know you bring up so many points that I want to highlight um one I just want to acknowledge the fact that this is an issue that is of obvious concern in the United States. I mean, not just from my personal accounts, but research shows this racial bias with regard to medical care. Um, and we know that um, Black maternal mortality rates are significantly higher compared to our peers. Um, and the disparities just continue to grow as it relates to um as it relates to care, you had mentioned talking about pain. And I just want to, you know, highlight again, the fact that research, so this is not Brie, this is not me, this isn't, you know, Joe Blow off the street. Research tells us that, you know, findings suggest that there is racial bias with regard to pain. And, you know, for you to say that, you know, you were in pain, you experienced, you know, spotting, you had these concerns and they were dismissed or ignored or minimized. It speaks to what research is telling us, like that these are real lived experiences of women of color, black women in the United States who are continuing to be failed by our medical system because of biases and um, even going further, talking about breastfeeding, you know, we're about to end Black Breastfeeding uh, Week here in the United States. And, you know, I appreciate you bringing up your experiences and that within itself is also alarming. The fact that you were put off, dismissed for a lactation consultant to know um, that their sole job is to see, you know, birthing people within the hospital and they not even know that you had given birth and to be present with you, you know, is, is it's so discouraging and it's heartbreaking. Um, 
I could go on and on about the fact that, you know, these are things that we see in research, but I feel like it's so important to like continue to like say those things because oftentimes I see and sometimes uh, literature and I suggest even um, literature that we look to for statistics suggests that it's more of um the woman's fault or, you know, the mother's fault, like things like, well, lack of education or, you know, resources and things like that. But if our system was different, access would be different, right? Like, you know, when when you talk about like not knowing about self-care and things like that, if the system itself were different, we wouldn't have to do uh, the thing where we put the the blame on the person who is, is currently not receiving the care that they should that they should get. Um, there's so many different like disparities with regard to breastfeeding and, and care um, that we could sit here and talk about, Brie. Um, you know, I had my own experiences where I felt like I was dismissed in terms of my birth and plan. Like I labored unmedicated for quite a while and, you know, said, you know, I want to be hooked up to a wireless monitor. Um, I want to be able to be mobile. I want and also felt dismissed and minimized. And, you know, it speaks to the representation being important. Right. You mentioned like going on in your second pregnancy and having a provider that, um, you could identify with and that provided you um, the care that you thought you should have received. And, you know, I echo those same exact things. And I think it's just so beautiful and important that you're using your story to enco- encourage other moms to advocate for themselves, but also to, you know, put a, put put it back out there to providers who, um, you know, I hope come across these episodes for them to take responsibility and onus of biases, because yes, while some are explicit, some are internalized. And, you know, regardless if you know them or don't know that they're there, it's still your responsibility to like be present, extend compassion and do your job regardless. Right. And to be mindful that, you know, it's not a textbook type of situation and that, you know, there are disparities um, that exist, very real disparities. And so I appreciate you again, just, I wanted to be able to say that, that, you know, research, I, th- I think it's just so important. I feel like people, they hear personal stories for some odd reason, personal stories, they hit home and are so incredibly powerful. I also think that sometimes people need to hear that research is backing everything that we say, that it's not, you know, again, Joe Blow off the street, just making up this stuff, but these are real lived experience and they're backed by science, that these things are actually happening in our medical system. Absolutely. And I also um, forgot to mention that during my first pregnancy, I was actually on uh, Medicaid and Mm. and I was talking to a friend, you know, just later on, uh, probably months later about my experience. She said, well, are you on Medicaid or do you have, you know, are you covered with your Blue Cross Blue Shield? Because since I was only 23, I was still under my mom's Blue Cross Blue Shield at the time. Mm-hmm. However, they don't cover pregnant dependents. So I wasn't making a lot of money then. And so I qualified for Medicaid. And so when I said, well, I did get Medicaid to cover my pregnancy, she said, well, that could be another reason they treated you like that. Like from the office to the mm-hmm. hospital, they they see 
a young girl, oh, she, you know, she got Medicaid, you know, it's looked down on. Yeah. Really, it shouldn't be, you know, um, Medicaid, I'm not on it anymore, but while I was on Medicaid for my first pregnancy, it helped out a lot. You know, it covered yeah. hospital bills, certain bills, it covered, um, things like getting an extra car seat. It covered some of the formula because I was able to get WIC vouchers. So, you know, it is looked down on because it's like, oh yeah, you're poor. You're not deserving of the best quality care, but really it's just out there for people who need it. And I hate that stigma yeah. you know, of, of Medicaid and assistance. Like I said, I'm not on assistance now, but when I was on assistance, I felt, I felt judged everywhere, even when I would be at the WIC office or even when I would be at the grocery store, you know, my vouchers trying to get the the milk and stuff, the formula, you know, it's like the way people look at you pulling out those vouchers. Yeah. Another young single mom who didn't do anything with her life. And quite honestly, my children forced me, not forced me because I've always loved school and I've loved to work, but my children brought out a drive that I did not even know I had. You know, I went to grad school after I gave birth and completed my entire program with a 4.0. Um, you know, I got several jobs after that. And now I'm working for one of the, you know, biggest public broadcasting services out there. So it's like, I feel like doctors and even a lot of people in the community, you know, look down on people who might need that extra assistance, that financial or, you know, medical assistance from the government. And I think that that does play a role in how they treat you often. So just wanted to put that out there, too. I agree. I agree 100 percent. And I worked in a hospital system and I saw I saw that. I mean, just frankly speaking, like I, I saw treatment being done differently. I saw um like, uh, for example, discharge being done differently, like who we, who we call DSS on, who we, you know, like just different things like that. Maybe the reason why I got written up so much at my job, because I was always pushing back <laughs> with doctors, but you know, I, I just feel like it's incredibly important to be mindful that these things exist. And if you do have a voice, if you do have, um, a space where you can, you know, acknowledge or affirm someone's experiences, I feel like it's important for you to do it. Like, because not everyone is going to be in that space to be able to um, push back when they see something being done wrong. Um, yeah. And, and the doctors scare you, you know, a yeah. lot of, because um, I, I was fearful, not really fearful, but I know I would tell my mom quite often because, like I said, she worked. So I'm not going to say she never attended an appointment with me, but she might have attended. I know her and my dad and my brother attended the appointment where I found out I was having a girl. Mm -hmm. um, I think my mom went with me to the very first appointment and then maybe one after that. But she didn't go in the back with me mm -hmm. any of the times, you know, except when we found out it was a girl. Otherwise, she would sit in the lobby, you know to allow me to, I guess, have my privacy. I don't really know what her reasoning was, but, um, you know, I guess to let me feel like I'm doing it on my own, you know, I'm a big girl now. I'm yeah. like mom. And so, you know, when she, um, when I would tell her like about the things the doctor would say to me, she would say, and I, she'd be like, well, what'd you say back? Cause my mama gave me this mouth. So she knows <laughs> how my mouth is. And so she'd be like, well, what'd you say back? What'd you do? Da da da. And I would tell her, you know, sometimes I'd be vocal and other times I'd just be like, mm -hmm. 
because you get to a point mentally where you don't even want to deal with it. It's like, okay, whatever. Yeah. But she was always saying, watch what you say to them because, you know, a lot of women, a lot of black women will die in labor and sometimes it goes unexplained. And so that wasn't necessarily the doctor threatening me to do that. He was going to do anything to me, but it made me think like, oh my gosh, I'm, when I do have this baby, I'm really putting my entire life and my child's entire life in their hands. And if they have any animosity toward me, they are the ones who can make it look like an accident or natural causes, you know? So that really just the fear of not being able to trust who I'm, you know, putting my life and my child's life, you know, their hands in, it kind of made me feel like, okay, I won't, excuse me, I won't ask anything else. I won't say anything. I won't get pushback. And that should not be the case. We should not be scared to advocate for ourselves. And I was just about to say that, Brie, and that's my takeaway from this, from this, this portion that like, I feel like when we are met with fear or anxiety, or even when there is medical jargon that like goes above our head, it's mm-hmm. still incredibly important for you to know that they they work for you. Like you, you are the person, yes, receiving services, but in this situation, consider it like you're at a restaurant. You, if you do not like that server, you can move to another section. And I always put it like that because I feel like, again, it seems very much bigger than us because again, that white coat, uh, like you mentioned, the fear of what ifs, they're in a lot more control than you are with regard to delivery. Um, and I think that it's important to just remember that you are in just as much control in that delivery room than your expectations tell you or than your assumptions mm-hmm. tell you. And so mm-hmm. the advocacy piece, that's that's my takeaway from this, is that you are still very much an advocate of yourself. And if you feel, my thing is if the fear lives within you that, oh goodness, if I ask a question or if I go against this person or if I push back even or challenge them on something that they might do something to me, that's your sign right there. They probably ain't a good fit. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. not even a good fit right then and there. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that with us. You had mentioned that um, you have an amazing partner right now. Um, but for a minute, you were essentially a single mom. And so talk with mm-hmm. us about how you navigated um, being a single mom, getting your career going, and um, how you balance your self-identity with all of those different roles? Honey, I don't even know. <laughs> well, I, I don't even know what self, well, I didn't know at the time what self-care was. That that was one area I definitely lacked in. I'll be completely honest. I am still learning that it's okay to take off the cake sometime and get a bottle of glass of wine and sit in the tub and not worry about anything. I'm still you know, trying to get to that point. But all before when it was just, you know, me and the kids, there were a lot of sleepless nights. I've actually learned how to sleep off of two to three hours of sleep. Um, Right after my second daughter was born, I, I was living at my mom's house because you know, I was on my own and then she's like, okay, well you're having a baby, come back home. So I went to her house, like, you know, before I gave birth. And that's where I stayed um, while, you know, my first daughter until my first daughter was about two. And then I ended up getting pregnant again 
and we stayed until my second daughter was born. Um, so in the beginning stages, like right before I left, maybe when my second daughter was two to three months old, um, that was when it was the hardest because, you know, I was in transition. I was about to move with two kids and a partner who was, cause this was with their dad, who was not helping a whole lot, you know, and there were a lot of sleepless nights. And so once we ended, once we officially broke up, um, or actually I became a single mom while we were still together. I'll be honest, because when you have somebody in the house who's not doing anything, not helping, not running bath water, not making bottles, not doing anything, not even microwaving some food for the kids, you're a single mom. And so I really had to just learn how to not sleep properly. And that's no good advice for anybody, but this is what I was doing. I wasn't sleeping properly because... Once I got the kids down, that was when I did more work Um, in my head. You know, I needed as much money as possible. I needed to make sure that my kids were taken care of because I knew at the end of the day, I was the only one they would depend on. And so I started writing books in 2017, um, right after my youngest was born. She was born in February of 17. And my, I published my first book, July of 17. So you know, with all of that going on, I'm working full time. I have two kids under the age of three. I'm writing books. I'm in a relationship that's not giving me what I need. And my father was recently diagnosed with cancer because he got his diagnosis when my youngest was two weeks old. So I was his caretaker, taking him to appointments during my maternity leave, leaving my youngest with a babysitter as early as two weeks old, so I could go to the hospital with him. Um, I really, really lacked in the self-care department, and I had to learn how to love myself and how to, you know, actually, um, what's the word? What word am I looking for? I really had to learn that I was important. And, you know, you hear the phrase, you can't pour from an empty cup, but it sounds cliche until you're really trying to pour from an empty cup, until you're really running off fumes until your child spills milk or something from out their cup. And it just sets you off into a mm. frenzy. You're yelling, you're crying. And then the kids are looking at you like, mom, sorry, it's just milk. And then the kids like, what did I do wrong? I'm, I'm sorry, mommy. I love you. And they're thinking it's their fault. And you have to sit there and explain to a two-year-old and a newborn, like, no, mommy is the one who needs help. Mom, mommy is the one who, you know, it's stressed out. It's not true. And I'm sorry. And seeing moments like that is what brought me to a point where I said, okay, I have to leave this relationship because if your relationship is not fulfilling you, helping you, or if it's still making you feel alone, you have to leave. And so I wanted, you know, obviously most women, you know, want, they have dreams of like their family being together at the time. That was what I thought I wanted, but I had to leave. And literally once I left that relationship, I had more responsibilities, obviously, because, you know, it was literally just me, you know, because he would help every now and then, but not really. And so it was really just me. But I also felt freer because I didn't have to care for a grown man. I didn't have to base what I was cooking tonight off of what he wanted, whether the kids, you know, and me thinking, oh, I got to make separate meals because the kid's not going to eat mm cleaning up behind a grown man. I only had to clean up behind kids. So once I left that relationship, honestly, um, the kids were, my oldest was three, four. This was four and my youngest was one and a half. Once that relationship ended, 
I just, I felt so much more at peace. Even my kids said that I was being nicer and I was doing more with them because honestly, if I wasn't working all before that, if I wasn't working, writing books or, you know, dealing with the kids, I was somewhere crying. I was in gaining mm. all this weight, you know, and then in the midst of that relationship, I lost my father to cancer. So it also, you know, I was grieving and my partner at the time did not understand my grief process. So I was able to grieve properly, which actually really, really, really helped me. It helped me be a better mom and a better sister, a better daughter, a better friend, because I wasn't having to like be so closed off from everybody. I could, you know, I felt like I could express myself freely because with my old partner, you know, I, I was scared to express those feelings because his take on it was, well, that happened, you know, in March. And I know it's November now, but it's six months later. You should be over it. Mm. You know, like that was his take on certain things. And so um, I just once I learned to let go, that was the first thing I did for me. That was the first act of self-care was getting rid of a relationship that wasn't meant for me. And then after that, you know, the kids started getting older and I was able to say, okay, can y'all entertain each other (laughs) while I, you know, take a bath or, you know, and it allowed me to be able to call for help because I mentioned earlier, women wanting to be super woman and I didn't want to ask for help. I felt like asking for help would make me weak. Um, Mm -hmm. Nobody necessarily made me feel that way, but I didn't want to burden my mother with the task of watching my kids unless she offered. If she didn't offer, I wasn't comfortable saying, hey, Ma, can you come get them for a little bit so I can go get my nails done, so I can go to dinner with some friends. I would just suffer, and I went to a point where I I cut off a lot of friends, not meaning to, but just because I didn't want my kids, because, you know, kids show out sometimes. So, you know, if they're inviting me to dinner or lunch, I didn't want to take the kids because I didn't want them to show out. So I would just say no, I just wouldn't respond. And it caused me to lose a lot of friendships because people thought I was, you know, had an issue with them or was being distant or was being rude. And really, I was just trying to not have a breakdown because it takes so much to get out the house when it's three people. Yeah. And- you have to get ready and then it takes so much energy to even sit there and try to make sure the kids are calm so they're not embarrassing you or the people you with then it takes money you know and as a single mom I was trying to save all the money I could for rainy days so you know it I was able to and my partner at the time too he made me feel bad for asking for help Mm. from him or somebody else because he'd be like well you're the mom you got it they asked you they didn't ask me And he'd be like, well, your mom didn't make these kids. You did. And so, you know, once I was no longer in that relationship, I was able to like freely ask for help or people would actually see like, hey, Brie might be over there struggling a little bit, you know, because in their heads, another adult has left the house. But in my head, another a child has left the house. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So I wasn't suffering on the end as much they thought but that's when they started offering like hey do you want me to watch the kids do you need me to get them and the old Brie would have said no I got it I'm good but that new Brie that was rejuvenated um, I was like yeah please Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so you know sometimes we have to uh we have to suffer for a little bit before we actually learn what works for us like I said I would not recommend any mother running off two, three hours of sleep. But that was what worked for me because I was able to write books at night after I had come from my day job, you know, and I was able to push out. I got to a point in 2018 where I was pushing out one book per month. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot when the books are, you know, over 60,000 words and have to go through editors and all that, you know, to be able to do all of that and, and release one each month for a year after you've watched your father die, you know, and you're raising two kids on your own, it takes a lot of sacrifice. And so I think I sacrificed the most I've ever sacrificed between the years of 2017 and 2020. Um, Cause my family was struck by tragedy um, quite often during those years. And then, you know, I was balancing single motherhood and also balancing, you know, um, just my grieving process and trying to find myself as far as what I want to do career wise. And so now in 2021 and beyond, I'm trying to live. I'm trying to, you know, allow myself to get help. Like I said, I have a guy who now who helps me with the kids. I don't even have to ask. He just does it, you know, and they're not his children biologically, but he will do anything he can for them. And that is very helpful to me because I can take off the cape now and say, okay, I don't have to do all this. I don't have to answer every time they're calling for a parent because they have two parents here now. And one of them is going to get up. He's not just going to sit on the game and not listen when they talk to him, you know, that he's going to do what they need him to do. And so it's been such a shift that now I'm finally at a point where I'm enjoying life and motherhood, but it took me seven years to get here. Mm. Mm. Mm-mm. Brie, I appreciate the transparency and authenticity in your story um, and am so thankful that you're joining me today because, I mean, I feel like there are so many moms who are married and who are single who can identify with this, right? There are struggles in every relationship. Um, I want to start by talking about those unmet needs. So you talked about how you had many unmet needs in um, your 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 motherhood journey before you decided like this is no longer serving me and you saw it represented or showing up in different ways. And I think that that is such a great point to highlight that we typically think like, oh, you got to be in bed or um, crying all day or missing work or those stereotypes or fighting all the time, those stereotypical ways that we think about like, oh, this isn't serving me. But it also can show up in like your daily routine, your your relationship dynamics with your children, like the things that, okay, this, if we take a step back or if we ask someone else, like if they're looking in, what do they observe? I feel like that that was something that was very telling. The fact that you said that your children came to you and were like, you know, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to drop that milk or that glass or whatever. And those little things, those little things are indications of unmet needs. And I feel like that's something that all of us can be mindful of, even myself. And I, I have to find myself sometimes. I have a toddler like saying, okay, Crystal, whew, you snapping a little bit. Like, mm-hmm, what did you not mm-hmm. do today for yourself? Like, and really checking in. And I think that this is a call to action. I know I'm highlighting it, but I feel like it's also a call or a charge for all of us to just be mindful to check in with ourselves and ask, like, what needs are going unmet? Did you eat today? I heard you say, like, sometimes you ask your littles, like, hey, can y'all entertain yourself so I can take a bath? You do mm-hmm. not know how many moms I talk to, Brie, who are like, 
I mean, I showered like yesterday and like, but I, mean, I might not get to till tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or, or like I showered, but it was literally like a hop in, hop out, or I hit my hot spots. Like, I mean, just keeping it real, like moms, like mm-hmm. have to schedule or have to pre-plan. And then you put on top of that, a relationship that isn't serving you or issues within your life that are no longer serving you. I am so happy to hear that you are in a better place with a man who um, supports you and shows up to meet your needs and to meet your family needs and goals. Incredible, Brie. I'm so happy that you're in this place. I have yes, to say that. Yeah. Then you have to add, you know, job depression on top of that because yeah. I was not working for PBS at the time. I wasn't being fulfilled in my job. So it's just like, you know, you women, we deal with so much and we hide it so well because- there, there are things that I will tell my mom about today that I went through in early motherhood or even, you know, last year, you know, and she's like, when did that happen? When did you go through that? When did you do that? Because, and I recently told her about a time where I was, I don't know where me and the kids were going, but we were going somewhere. Maybe we were coming from, we were, you know what, we were coming from my father's house because this was uh when he was, you know, obviously still alive. And I was going down after work. He lives um, like 30, he lived 30 minutes from me. So sometimes I pick the girls up after work and we go down there to check on them. And then I come home a little later. And so we were actually driving home from his house. And I had seen how, I don't know, you know, how many people listening have ever seen someone literally, you know, suffer with cancer and have to actually die through cancer. And, you know, you see how brittle they've become. You see their bones. You see, you know, how small they are. You see their attitude shift. I had to see all of that. And I had to be the strong one because it's like, I don't want my daddy to see me crying over him. You know, I want to be there for him. And so I had just had a mentally exhausting day at work with my dad, just seeing him like that. And I remember the kids were in the back seat. And they were crying and fighting. They were just, they were kidding. They were kids being kids, you know? And while it shouldn't have bothered me so much, it did. And I do not like to admit this, but it got to the point where I said in my head, I said, you know what? I could end it all right now. And I really, really wanted to, but I could not just drive off the road, you know, because I had to think about them. But I was in that moment where it's like, oh my God. Everything is wrong. What what is going to go right? What is going to fix this? And instead of driving my car into another car on the off the road like I might have wanted to, I pulled over and I cried. And me crying stopped the kids from crying because they were looking like, well, what's going on? And I just I just cried. I just cried, cried, cried. And my oldest unbuckled her seatbelt. I think she was about three at the time. She unbuckled her seatbelt. And I remember she kissed me on the cheek and she said, I'm sorry, mama, it's okay. And that made me cry more. And then I put her back in her seatbelt and I went home. And it's very insignificant, but I remember it because I remember just thinking like, I'm through. I can't do this anymore. I can't do good. I can't do, you know, being a caregiver, watching my daddy suffer. I can't do this job that I hate that pays me just enough to be broke. Because at that time I was literally making enough to cover rent and daycare and the light bill. I didn't have cable. My kid, you know, we didn't have, and we still don't do like the designer stuff and all that, but we, I, I couldn't really shop like that. I literally made enough to 
do those three things. And with groceries, it was between my house and my mama's house where we were eating every night. You know, I was suffering and it wasn't the kids fault. And it wasn't even lack of education because I had a master's degree. But in South Carolina, a master's degree don't mean much, you know, nowadays. And so, you know, that that just getting to that was one of my breaking points. I've had a few breaking points in my life, but I think that was the the one where I really said, you know what, Bree, you have got to pull it together because the fact that I thought about, you know, what what would happen if I ended it all for not only me but my kids, it scared me and it snapped me back into you know, my reality, like, Brie, you got to get some help. And I actually started therapy shortly after that. That was my next question. Okay, so here we are. One thing that I want to say is, again, Brie, transparency, I am so appreciative of it. And I know that it might have taken you a lot of courage to just disclose that to us, but you are not the only one who's been in that space. I mean, I say I, you know, I, you're not the only one who's experienced this, not to minimize your experience, but to um, just amplify how powerful your story is and how much that you possibly just gave to someone else by sharing your story. You know, your transparency may have been the difference between someone struggling with shame, guilt, disappointment, um, embarrassment, beating themselves up because they've had thoughts of ending their life and the lives of their children, and then them getting help now because they see your story or they hear your story and they see the progress that you have made through therapy and through your your lived experiences. I am so appreciative of the transparency, Brie, um, because you do not know how much you may have just given to someone else through sharing those experiences and where you are now in your life. Going back to how old was your little girl around that time, your youngest? Uh, my youngest was, I don't even think she was one yet because see... Yeah. Yeah, she wasn't she wasn't quite one cuz she was born February. My dad passed March of 18. She was and she was born February of 18. So her first birthday, he was actually in the hospital. So this had to be before that because he was at home. So yeah, she wasn't even quite one. So you know, that makes me wonder, you know, with all the different stressors that you were experiencing with your partner, with work, with finances, with navigating your own identity, now balancing two children, all of those things, it makes me wonder like, what's postpartum at play here? And then the Mm -hmm. other thing that it makes me think about is your dad and Um, The fact that you were, I heard you mention that you were his caregiver, secondary or vicarious trauma is very real. And Mm -hmm. the fact that you were there witnessing, you know, not just with your eyes, but with your ears, you know, everything comes into place when you have repeated exposure to things that are completely distressing. And then on top of that, it sounds like you were burning out at the same time. It makes sense that you would have had those um, deeply disturbing thoughts you know what I mean and I'm thankful Mm -hmm. to hear that you know you and your beautiful little girls are still here earthside with us and I'd love for you to share you know that that um therapy component and the things that helped you to cope through that difficult time in your life yeah so literally that moment scared the crap out of me I will say because I had you know I had just never felt that that ready to just say goodbye to everything, you know, and t- until that moment hit. And so I remember um, 
telling a good friend about it like the next day or a couple of days after. And she suggested therapy. And, you know, in the black community, it's like, oh, therapy is for crazy people. That That's what I used to think, obviously, you know. So it was like, oh, I don't need therapy because I would even lie. And I've been straight up here. You know how you take to your kids to the doctor and they have that postpartum questionnaire for the parents? I know. Yeah. I would lie. You know, when they say, have you ever felt, have you felt sad in the last month or so? Have you ever felt you couldn't control yourself? No, no, no. You know, because I don't want these people to number one, judge me. Number two, I don't want these people to take my kids from mm-hmm. me. And that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I wasn't realizing that they might've been able to get me help. But, um, so, you know, I lied on the questionnaire and maybe I shouldn't have because I wouldn't have gotten to that particular point where I did that night. But, um, one of my friends suggested therapy and I went to a therapist who, once again, we go back to who you can identify with. And I went to a therapist that I probably couldn't have identified with. After all, this was a white male and I am everything opposite. I am a black woman. And, um, you know, he listened, but he did the just repeat back to you. He So if I said, yeah, you know, my dad has cancer, so I'm going through that. I hate my job. I hate my boyfriend. I have two kids and I feel alone. He would say, okay, so your dad has cancer. You feel alone. You hate your job. You know, it wasn't really conversational. It was just him taking notes. And so I did see him for about a month. I went like every week for a month and I never felt like he was helping me. So I ended up going to a lady. Um, she's She is a white lady. However, she made me feel so welcome so down to earth. I don't know if it's because she was a woman too you know we could identify on that level but she's also a single mom she has three children she didn't have the best relationship with her family because her family doesn't like the fact that she likes men from other races so you know I didn't have that going on but I had the stressful family dynamic you know so she's like you know, she doesn't even talk to her family, but here I am trying to care for mine and getting in spats with my dad, you know, the closer he is to death, unfortunately. And it's because of the stresses. So, you know, we kind of bonded over that. We bonded over single motherhood. And she is actually who helped me realize that I was going to be okay without that particular relationship. So it literally took her confirming it for me. Um, so that happened like through one of the appointments we went to where, um, or I went to where she asked me to list down every single responsibility I had. And she wanted me to list my financial responsibilities, my emotional, my physical responsibilities, just everything. So, I mean, I listed, I got specific because I I got so specific to where I would even put in warming up. I would even put down like warming up my car, you know, in the mornings because this Mm -hmm. was time because me and my kid's dad broke up in December. So this was around, you know, October, November when I finally got the courage because I mentally left before I physically left. Yeah. But um, this was I even wrote down, you know, specific things like that. And so she was like after she read my list, she was like, "Okay, now write down what your responsibilities would be if you left your relationship and were a single mom. And I had less Mm. because my responsibilities with the relationship, I had to include sex. I might not have wanted to, but I had to, I had to include, as I stated, cooking several different meals 
per day because, you know, maybe he didn't want what the kids wanted. Or if I was trying to eat healthy, he wouldn't eat healthy with me. And so I had to make him something different. So, you know, I, I had to do less. And once she actually, it, it was tangible at that point, you know, I could see it. I was holding the list. I was counting the numbers because she told me to make sure to number them. Once I saw I had less to do with him in the house, I said, okay, yeah, it's, it's time. It makes sense. And again, that was when a lot of the um, stress left my body and I was able to focus on me. I wasn't told anymore, you know, oh, I don't take you out anywhere because you're fat and embarrassing. I was able to actually have the time to go to the gym because all before I might have been fat and embarrassing because I didn't have the time to exercise, you know, because yeah. um, I'm so busy doing other stuff around the house. But now that you're gone and I only have two kids to worry about instead of three because you were a child to me, you know, I have that extra time to do stuff. So therapy helped. Um, I am ashamed to say I don't go anymore, but there are a few factors that played into that. Um, I saw this therapist for a while. She was great, you know, but then when COVID happened, yeah, um, it switched from me coming into her office in West Columbia to us doing telehealth. And it was like a Zoom call or not a Zoom call. It was like a FaceTime. And um, it just didn't feel it didn't feel good. I, I still didn't feel like I didn't feel we had that intimacy, you know, because like when I'm sitting in her office, I know it's just me and her. I know can't nobody hear me through the doors. Right. See, I got her undivided attention. With the the way we were doing it through telehealth, you know, I don't know who's listening. Not that I didn't trust her, but it's just like her kids were home just like my kids were home all day, every day. So it's like, I don't know who hears me. I don't know where she is because her background is virtual, you know, and so it just... To me, it didn't feel like therapy anymore. Um, And then she actually decided to go solo and leave her practice. And she was not uh, able to accept my insurance anymore. Um, Like she was getting to the point where she was going to try to start accepting insurance, but she wasn't there just yet. And, you know, it's expensive. I will say (laughs) even with insurance, I was paying a pretty good copay. But, you know, it, it got expensive and it felt, you know, less therapeutic to me and more like, oh, I got to get on FaceTime for an hour. I don't even want to sit on the phone, you know, because I'm not even a phone person, to be honest. So I I did stop going to therapy in 2020, but I I do need to go back. Um, Not because anything is going technically wrong in my life, but because things are going right and I want them to continue to go right. Um, So I do need to get back into therapy, but therapy did help. I went from 2018 to 2020, and I do highly recommend. I appreciate you sharing that portion. You know, I, my primary job is a therapist, and I specialize in working with the perinatal and postpartum population. And so um, motherhood, mom and baby is all I know and all that I do day in, day out with moms. And so the fact that you mentioned, I'll start with the fact that you mentioned that you used to go into your, you know, six week postpartum visit or your visits and you would feel scared about, you know, disclosing truthfully on those assessment tools. Um, What was really going on is something that I hear often. And again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with stigma and bias and the system being um, sometimes not set up 
in the right way to support moms or for them to feel as though they can get the support that they need. Um, one thing that I do want to mention with regard to that is you hit the nail on the head with, you know, this could have been an opportunity to get support. And I would just encourage those who may be listening to know that there are provi providers out there who are connected with therapists, who their first inclination isn't to take baby. And I can understand how scared um, and how difficult those thoughts might be to try and break away from, especially when your sweet baby is all that you want to keep near you, right? But you're struggling as well. And so, you know, I, I think it also goes back to, you know, being a good fit. You mentioned, you know, finding a, a provider and um, you mentioned that she was a white woman. You mentioned that. And when I say good fit, I'm talking someone who extends compassion. I'm talking someone who hears you, someone who can show up with resources, give you some techniques. You know what I mean? Like, yes, it is good if, you know, you feel as though you need representation in terms of looking back at them and seeing that they have your same hue, right? Like, that's good if, right. that, if, that, right. if, that, if that's what it means to you for a good fit. But I'm also talking about those things like compassion and all those other things that I mentioned. And so I encourage um, listeners to know that the other thing, too, is, you know, with those screening tools, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know what I mean? That you're that you have to go and, you know, get on medication or you have to get hospitalized or any of those. It could mean that you need talk therapy. It could mean that you need therapy and medication. It can mean a number of things, but we don't know if you don't disclose the information. And so the thing about that, again, I just want to preface is find your good fit. I feel like that's the takeaway from that portion is you will feel comfortable enough to share if the person you're sitting in front of, you feel comfortable with. I feel like it starts there. It starts there for sure. The other thing that I want to mention is um, you talk a lot about your lost experience, Bree, and how you, know, you were not in a good place um, to actually grieve the way that you needed to grieve, partly because your partner was unsupportive. He didn't understand. But truthfully, it almost sounds like, you know, there was a lot of, you know, emotional abuse there. I mean, would you would you say that, you know, to some degree, like you felt minimized and invalidated and felt like you like essentially were, were made to be smaller than you actually were? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah my feelings didn't matter. My yeah. feelings didn't matter. I was told, you know, by that particular person oh, you're not the first one to lose a parent. You know, yeah. a lot of people have cancer. A lot of people die from it. Yeah. You expected it, you know? And so it it made me uncomfortable to the point where I couldn't, you know, tell him when I was thinking about my dad. Cause I was very close with my father. You were, so yeah. I couldn't, you know, tell him when I miss my dad or when I just wanted to like go to his grave. Cause my old apartment where we were staying at the time was literally in walking distance from my dad's grave. And I remember one time I told him, I just wanted to drive, you know, just, hey, watch your kids for a second. I just need to, you know, go somewhere. And he's like, well, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to go, you know, sit with my dad for a little bit before it gets dark. Because, you know, I'm not going to do no cemetery in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> and his response was, why, why waste your time mm -hmm. out there? What is it going to do for you? And that really hurt me because it's like, 
hey, I just I just need to go for myself. And he's like, well, you got to take the kids with you because I got something to do. So, of course, I didn't go, you know, because yeah. I, um, my kids, they go out there on birthdays and Father's Day. But I don't just take them out there when I want my alone time with my dad. And I hadn't been in a while. But, um, you know, I used to go quite often when I lived near there. And it was just time for me and him. You know, I didn't want the kids around. I wanted my own I wanted to be with my dad, and, you know, and so things like that out shows that, no, I was not supported. Um, and that's I wasn't supported with that, with the grieving process or again with the kids, because responses would always be, well, they're the one who asked you for juice. Why do I have to do it? Or, well, can't you just stop writing for a second, take a break and go make them something to eat? when he's sitting on the couch doing absolutely nothing you know so I couldn't I feel like I couldn't reach a lot of goals I had even talked to him about going back to school to pursue my doctorate degree and the first question was well how you gonna pay for it so I was like well I'm gonna do loans well who gonna pay those back because it ain't gonna be me I'm like what is that to even say you know what I mean like if you're really on my team and if you're really wanting me to better myself and you know, not just for me, but for the kids that we created together, because they're my reason for doing anything these days. Um, you know, you would have been supportive. So yeah, it was a lot of moms and they won't speak up. They'll make it look good on Facebook. They'll make it look cute on Instagram, all the pictures and stuff. But a lot of people are going through this because I was one of them. You know, I, we take a cute picture, I post it. People, people would think everything is all good. We would pull up to the functions together, you know, looking all cute, acting like we all in love. We in the car about to have an Ike and Tina moment, you know, yeah. and then we get home and it's even worse. And, you know, a part of that was pride because so many people had told me in the beginning, like before kids were even a part of the situation, they told me this ain't for you. This, this, this not, this not it, you know, please go get better. But me, I'm, I'm an empathetic person and I'm a, I'm a giver. So I feel like, oh, well, I can I can work with this person. I can help them. I can work on them. And that's, again, me trying to take on that super superwoman role. You know, like I can save people. And I saw something on Facebook recently that said everybody is not your assignment. That's why you're drained. And I really, really, really <laughs> needed that years ago. You know, I needed that back in 2011 when we met. You know what I mean? And maybe I would have I wouldn't have had the particular kids I have, no, but I'm sure I would have had a more supportive, you know, biological father for my kids and decisions I made would have probably been a lot wiser, you know, had I understood that at a young age. But, you know, they say with age comes wisdom. So I am thankful for the wisdom I have now. I just wish I would have had it back then. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, when you reflect back on your story, Bree, I mean, it's so incredibly powerful just to hear how full circle your life has been, you know, from being young and um, being uh, pregnant and having a partner who was unsupportive, um, having some, you know, financial and career difficulties, but still, you know, having mental health concerns and still managing to, you know, survive and um, see the other side to it. I feel like that's a testament to who you are and the amazing gift that you give to other people through your story. Um, so I'm so appreciative of everything that you've shared. One of the things that comes to mind is 
um, in talking about this full circle moment is coming from off of that breakup and, you know, finding yourself and not just your own identity, but also in motherhood, it had allowed you to, you know, figure out how to grieve your father. But I also know that you also, again, experienced tragedy um, very close to you with a sibling. And so um, could you share with us how grief looks like in relation to um, just everyday life with motherhood, with work, now on the other side, again, away from the stressor, uh, a stressor of a relationship that was unsupportive, and now on this side where you're able to find support, you're in a better place mentally. Um, where are you at with grief today? Yeah, and that's one reason I do want to get back into therapy because even though, you know, I'm better with the majority of things going on in my life, I still have my moments, you know, where I miss my sister or I miss my dad. Um, but right now I do have somebody who, you know, if we're watching a movie and I'm so sensitive that, you know, I cry at the drop of a hat. So if I'm watching a movie and it's a wedding scene where the girl is getting married and her daddy's walking her down the aisle, I'm probably crying because I will never have that. Or if, you know, I see a TikTok and it's like, two sisters, a big one and a little one, you know, and they're doing something or some sort of sibling challenge, I feel some type of way. So to me, I, I grieve literally every day. But the difference now with this relationship is, um, and at this stage, my children, number one, they, they're grieving. So I, uh, but they, their grief isn't bad. You know, like they'll look at the clouds or like we actually were in a plane not too long ago because we went to Chicago. And when we were in the plane, my youngest was like, mommy, we're up here with your daddy and Aunt Manish. You know, we're in the clouds with them. And I'm like, yeah, we sure are, baby. Let's make sure we tell them we love them. You know, things like that. Or um, they'll grab his pictures or my sister's pictures and they'll, you know, kiss them or say, hey, I miss them. Um, you know, what do you think they're doing? And my answer is like, oh, they're watching over you. You know, they miss you, too. So it's more I'm doing more comforting because my kids were really young when my dad died. They were three and one. Yeah. So, you know, they my three year old understood. She even talked just yesterday about going to his wake and seeing his body. But it didn't really hit her then. It's hitting her now because she's seeing kids with granddads, mm -hmm. picking them up from school, you know, that kind of thing. And she's realizing, oh, my granddaddy is gone. Um, now, with my sister, she passed last year, so my kids were a little older. So, And we had just hung out with her about two weeks before she died, actually. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, for them, you know, they're just saying they miss her and they want her to, you know, come back and hang out, you know, like we did the last time. And I'm just explaining, like, we can't but her and Pop Pop are, you know, saving our spots in heaven. So I grieve when I see things, you know, things that trigger me. Right. But with my kids, you know, they have these moments where they're just thinking about them and I have to be there to like ease the situation. Like I, I don't, I try not to just cry in front of them. I do sometimes, but I try to keep it happy. So they're not depressed. They're going through life with absolutely no aunt because their father has no sisters. And that was my only sister. So, you know, they have absolutely no aunt um, and that they don't have, you know, their grandfather here. So I'm trying to keep it 
uh, I try to keep it happy and upbeat with them. But then with my partner, when we are, you know, in bed or on the couch watching a movie or something or, you know, listening to a song that might remind me of them, he just allows me to cry. Like <laughs> he just he just holds me. He just, you know, allows me to be um, he'll, you know, he, he won't even ask questions. <clears throat> excuse me, he won't even say like, oh, well, why are you crying? Because he already knows, Yeah, you know, and he's been through grief himself. So I think it's also because, you know, he he's experienced loss with his father as well. So, you know, he understands how I feel. And it's not like he's just, you know, he's not expecting me to be over it mm-hmm. because he understands that it's a process versus mm-hmm. You know, March of 2018, when my father passed, my old partner expected me to be over it April of 2018. You know what I mean? Like, he's like, well, that it happened it's done. But that's because he has both parents. He doesn't have anybody he's lost that he's been close to. Um, And also because he wasn't he's not emotionally in tune or at least wasn't with me. Hopefully for the right woman, you know, he will be. But he was not emotionally in tune with me. and He didn't allow me to freely be myself and my new partner does. And I attribute that to the fact that we had a friendship for about 13 years before we started dating. So, you know, he, I'm just able to be a hundred percent comfortable with him. And so it makes my process a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can appreciate um, where you're at right now, Bree. And you said something a moment ago when you said, you know, every day you're grieving. <laughs> Um, and this this is essentially a process. And I feel like for moms who've experienced loss, be it miscarriage, be it stillbirth, be it um, someone significant in their life, like a parent or like a sibling, I think that this is also worth highlighting the fact that, you know, you will be triggered, but you will have ways to cope through it, right? And that those things are acquired, you know, over time. And while, you know, you always want the person to be there and um, to be present in Earthside with you, that that pain, you know, over time, it gets less and less intense. And you figure out ways to manage and to support each other and comfort each other. So I really appreciate your vulnerability with that as well. Um, you mentioned a moment ago while we're wrapping up here that you um, are going to try and figure out how to get back into therapy to sustain this great place that you're in. And, you know, I want to congratulate you on finding that place. A lot of times people do think that therapy is just, you know, for when there are big issues or when you're going through something difficult, but it also can be to maintain. Therapy within itself is a form of self-care. And so I think that that's something worth noting. And, you know, it's like fireworks to my ears hearing you say that as a therapist. And so um, I'm rooting for you and for your family. It sounds like you found a wonderful man and your family um, is in a good place. I want to ask you um, before we get off, what do you think you deserve to hear right now in this moment about who you are, the things you've been through that maybe maybe you haven't told yourself before or that you don't tell yourself enough? What can you pour into yourself in terms of self-compassion in this moment? Um, I really have to learn to give myself grace when it comes to, number one, where I'm at in life. Like, I, I love my job. However, I know that <clears throat> essentially I want more for myself. You know, I want 
um, a position where I'm in more control, you know, whether it's management at my current job or whether it is with a bigger media company or my own media company. You know, I my journey in the um, television industry, you know, it started in 2020. However, I'm not... I don't have that position where it's like, oh, this is exactly where I want to be. No, I, I want more. I'm aiming for more daily. I'm checking jobs to see what media companies are hiring for more because I just I always want to push myself. But I've always had a problem with being OK with where I'm at and just congratulating myself to get into this point, because I, I have to remember that when I was working at my previous job, I was praying to get to where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And now that I'm here, it's like, okay, I got to get more. I got to get more. So I have a problem and not saying that I should be complacent, but I do have a problem that I have identified where I can't just be okay. I feel like I have to always be doing something or doing more. And I don't give myself enough credit for how far I've gotten. Um, and then also I need to give myself grace when it comes to my body. I body shame myself a lot. Now, granted, um, last year I was the heaviest I'd ever been outside of being pregnant. And that was because, you know, I, I attribute that to losses, depression, COVID, you know, yeah. it was a lot going on. Um, and so between that then and now I have lost about seven no, not not quite 17, maybe about 14 of those pounds um, between last July and right now, August 2021. So 14 pounds is great, but I know I could be doing better. However, I, I need to be OK with the 14 pounds I've lost. I need to realize that it took me X amount of years to get to this size. So it's, I'm not going to be, you know, at 150 or 140 overnight. Um, I criticize myself a lot. And that's because, you know, I see people who are much further in life, in my opinion, or who, you know, they've worked their behinds off, like literally, and have lost, you know, 70, 80 pounds in a year. And I'm like, why can't that be me? Or, oh, they're, you know, my age and buying their second house and they've got three and four properties. And I'm like, why is that not me? Why am I still in an apartment? You know, never even been a homeowner yet. But I have to realize everything happens in time. And I just need to learn to congratulate myself with each small step. You know, I'm, I'm not where I want to be. And I, I know I'm not, but I'm definitely not where I was. And I need to to really understand that and just say, you know what, Bree, you're doing pretty good. Mm. Bree, I love that. Learning to congratulate myself with each small step. That's beautiful. It is. And I feel like that's a, you know, a beautiful um, reminder and gem for all of our listeners. And I'm talking about myself also mm -hmm. um, to just be mindful that if you reflect back, you are further today than you were yesterday. You are further mm -hmm. today than you were two weeks ago. So I am so appreciative of that because I, I even needed that today to hear you say that. So thank you so much, Bree. I could have, I mean, we're like way over our hour at this point. <laughs> I, could, I could sit here and talk to you all day. This has been amazing. And I, I'm so, when I say honored, I don't even know if that's the right word, but I am honored to have held this space with you and um, been able to extend you empathy. And, you know, you talk about support that 
you know, you so much wanted and I hear it in, in the way that you talk. And I want you to know that I'm also a support to you in any way. Um, so please know that. But yeah, I, I love this. And your story is just so beautiful, Brie, and it's so powerful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And honestly, just being able to talk for this hour and a half, you know, about the my birth journey, my my motherhood journey, starting from birth until now, that in itself has been therapeutic. So thank you so much. I feel like I owe you because I feel like I just got a free therapy session. No, girl. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no, this, this is, you know, the whole purpose of this is, you know, from for mama to mama to just like sit down. Cause like you said, like we do not get chance to just sit down and share from birth to where we are now or like the struggles and the wins and the success. And so this is what it's for that. It, it is mama to mama right now. That's, that's what it is. Yes. And if we do sit down and vent, you know, we're bad moms, you know yep. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we're, Oh no, you're not doing anything that no other woman has had to do before. You know, you're, it comes with motherhood. It is what it is. You're a mom. You have to do this. So I, I appreciate, like I said in the beginning, this platform that you provided for women, because I know a part of my problem is even though I have lots of friends who are moms, I still don't feel comfortable telling them 100 percent of what I might be feeling, 100 percent of what I go through. And I especially don't feel comfortable talking to you know, people who don't have small kids or may not have any kids because you feel judged. You know, people look at motherhood and they're like, well, you chose to keep it. So you chose to, you know, do the sleepless nights. You chose to do, you know, the lack of money in your bank account because you got to buy X, Y, and Z. And so it just feels good to be able to sit down with you and just be, just be honest, just, you know, be very candid about good and bad experiences. Because as I mentioned, I'm just getting to a point where I'm in thoroughly enjoying motherhood. I've always loved my children, mm-hmm. but motherhood up till, you know, maybe late 2020 when I got with a supportive partner has always seemed like a chore and a burden that yeah. was just on me. And now that I have somebody, you know, to do it with, I, some stress is alleviated off me. So I'm getting to a point now where it's like, you know, dang, I really love my kids. I'm really, and I loved them before, but right. it's like really, really, you know, am am happy with being a mother when I was before it was kind of like, huh, I could have been doing so much more. I could have been doing yeah. different things. And, you know, we'll always wonder what if, you know, and how much further we would have mm-hmm. been in life, but you don't know. You could have been, I might not be doing this great if I didn't have right. kids, you know? So for moms out there, who are in that space where they might feel like, oh my gosh, my life is over. No, your life is just beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, please, please don't think like that. Um, the children will eventually get older and it'll get easier. And then you're going to miss those moments from when they're small. I was just looking at pictures of my oldest as a baby because her birthday was yesterday. And, you know, I felt bad because in those moments when she was a baby, when she was one, two, three years old, I was suffering so much in my head and, you know, my heart that I don't know if I took enough time with her as a baby, you know, and now I'm just trying to get all of that back. I'm trying to, you know, just spend all the time that I can because I'm a blink and she's going to be in college. And I'm just, you know, I'm just be wondering, like, did I spend enough time? Did I love her enough? Did I love her hard enough? Did I teach her enough? Or was I so busy going through my own stuff? So I tell mothers to, 
enjoy the moments. I know it sounds cliche, but please enjoy the moments because these kids do grow up fast. Yes, they do, Brie. And I, I love that you just, you know, did a um, did a gem to mamas who are listening in and to me. Um, and I hear you. I hear I hear you when you say, you know, you've always loved your children, but it's felt like a chore. You know, I talk to, you know, my friends and family and my clients all the time about duality on my on my therapy Instagram. I'm always talking about duality and the, the aspect that two things can be true. You could love your kids, but hate the task of motherhood. And it's yes. very real. It's, it's so real, Bree. Like you, you could love your body for like creating and birthing your sweet, beautiful kids, but not necessarily be comfortable with where your weight is, right? And like, it's just so important to leave space. And I think you used the perfect word earlier, which was grace. And I feel like Mm -hmm. that's exactly what you're talking about right now. That's exactly what you're talking about. So thank you again, Brie. I, um, man, if y'all grow y'all family again with your new partner, you, you know what I mean? Like you just come right on or if you have any more like business ventures or, I mean, anything that you, you know, have going on, we'd love to keep up with moms to see where they're at in their life and to hear about their successes. And yeah, we're definitely a support over here at the Birth Story Therapist Podcast. Yes, thank you so much for all the work you do. And thank you for the invite. Um, I definitely enjoyed this therapeutic conversation. Mm -hmm. And I hope that, you know, some moms listening out there can get something from it. You know, I do enjoy being transparent because I feel like it helps people realize that they're not alone. And that's something that, you know, I've always suffered with kind of thinking I'm alone and going through things. So I don't want other people to feel like they are. So I never mind, you know, sharing certain things, whether it's traumas, whether it's, you know, financial issues, whether it's heartbreak, uh, anything like that, because I know that I'm not the only one. And if I can help just one person, then my job is done. Right, right. Somebody's gonna get something. I've got something. And you know what I mean? I'm sitting here recording. So I know that others are gonna love it, Brie. I want to just extend another um, thank you to you and um, just show my appreciation by just celebrating you and your life and your story. Um, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you. I hope you take care and, you know, we're always here again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And, um, I, I can't wait to listen and hopefully I'll be a guest again with some more chats. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. As always, it's important for me to note that this podcast does not replace being connected or receiving therapeutic services from a licensed mental health clinician. If you are experiencing a life-threatening emergency, please call 911 or go to your local emergency room. You can also find additional resources on episode two, one being postpartum.net, where you can get connected with support groups, as well as therapist, psychiatrist, other providers within your community that may be of service to you on your motherhood journey. Again, that resource is postpartum.net, but you can find additional ones on episode two. Thank you.